Captain Video operates from a mountain retreat with secret agents at all points of the globe. Possessing scientific secrets and scientific weapons, Captain Video asks no quarter and gives none to the forces of evil. Stand by for Captain Video! And here's Video Rangers! Welcome to the Nightmare of Reason with Roger Rudenstein. Musings on music, art, and society. title of today's podcast is The Cinema, Where Classical Music Went to Die. I'll start out by talking about classical music in the 1950s. In the 50s, believe it or not, as the intro to this podcast shows, classical music was rather popular. Captain Video was a kid's program. And who would expect to see the overture to the Flying Dutchman playing as the theme music? Another kids' program that was pretty popular was the Lone Ranger, whose theme song was the William Tell Overture, an opera overture also. This is just typical. There were weekly opera programs in that time on television. NBC had the NBC Symphony Orchestra, whose conductor was the famous Arturo Toscanini. That's just the tip of the iceberg. In other areas, culture was in evidence too, such as the Hallmark Hall of Fame, which today plays syrupy melodramas. In those days, had the classic plays like R.U.R., Ibsen's Enemy of the People, you name it. In fact, I, I got my early education in drama from the Hallmark Hall of Fame quite before I went to college and majored in drama. The cinema used a lot of classical music too. Alfred Hitchcock notably used Bernard Herrmann's work. Today, even though Hitchcock is a great director, one wonders about the melodramatic use of this music. It's overblown, late romantic music, but it's pretty good. And there's music in his remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. There's a whole 12-minute opera segment in which uh, in the climactic scene where someone's going to be assassinated, you're just waiting for that to happen. And it starts out with this opera segment written by a fellow called Arthur Benjamin and conducted by Bernard Herrmann. And this opera segment is really quite good. It's just a little strange. It's about a woman waiting for a storm to break, which of course tracks the whole thing about the assassination quite well, but it's also very effective. And Amazing, actually, in some ways. And here it is, right in the middle of a big, major Hollywood film by Alfred Hitchcock. These are things you would not see today. And in the 50s and early 60s, this is what you did see quite frequently. And I'll go into, in a future podcast, some of the reasons that I think were responsible for this sort of decline in major culture and culture that reached out to very broad numbers of people and thus found its way into cinema and television and so on, radio, of course, also. But today, where we find the classical music is in the movies. And one of the earliest examples was the movie Captain Blood, where this kind of music, late romantic music, huge orchestra, gigantic swells, and so on, in the Captain Blood movies, where the music was by Eric Korngold, who was a refugee from Nazi Germany, who came to Hollywood to stay along with people like Arnold Schoenberg and others. We'll also discuss a little more in in future podcasts. Schoenberg never did not write for the movies, but 
Korngold certainly did. And he had a big influence because we see examples of that today very often. For instance, in the latest movie, Dune, where uh, Hans Zimmer, who's a big practitioner of this late romantic style, holds forth in actually very bombastic and sometimes very effective manner. And we see this stuff in other films too. And, and I just like to discuss a few of them to just get some of the idea of the moving genre. And it's not always this overblown late romantic stuff. Sometimes it's much more intimate stuff using very often featuring piano music and then the chamber kind of thing where cello will come in. For example, in Nomadland, which won the uh, Oscar for Best Picture, there you see a very effective use of this kind of music, a lot of piano, a lot of cello. And unfortunately for my musical taste, the cello has been altered at some kind of cello hybrid. It's like a cello, but it's out of tune, raspy, and not in a very pleasant way. It's like the composer didn't want to have music that sounded too nice because it didn't fit the nomad land idea, which is about people who just wander about, who dropped out of the mainstream for various reasons, like losing their jobs or their homes and um, wandering around our current landscape, taking jobs at Amazon warehouses and whatever they can and making, in this case, a sort of fetish out of it, portraying it as a good thing. They're not tethered to the usual rat race, which of course it's not a bad thing really, but you can take a little too far. I think Nomadland shows that, but we're supposed to feel sorry for them and what's happened to America from that. And this raspy out of tune cello is emblematic of that, but it has some very nice musical moments, particularly with the piano stuff. And then we can go over to something like Foundation, which is a movie on Apple TV, which is based on the science fiction of Isaac Asimov about a future, future society, which varies between these sort of oscillation sounds being made by uh, oscillators, not the kind of classical music we'd be used to, but uh, although there have been some practitioners of this, more Zabotnik, but this also has regular music, but None of it is, is formulaic. In other words, they use these sort of repetitive patterns that you can get in a patch library, if you're familiar with those kind of libraries. And it's not, I don't know whether they're being played from MIDI or, or from actual orchestra, but it's very mechanical. Then there's other stuff that interests me, like the fact that composers who compose for the cinema are made to tailor their music so that it pretty much stays in the background. In other words, there are times when it can come forward, as you can see in Dune, during the fight scene in Dune, where there's no dialogue, but all kinds of pyrotechnics, and Hans Zimmer's music just soars in that, becomes very loud and gigantic. But most of the time, it's relegated to the background, and what's important is the action that's taking place in front of it not so much the music in back, that's just meant to set a mood or a feeling for the movie. And this is what pretty much composers have to do when they compose for the cinema. They know that their music is going to take the back seat to the movie and it's not going to be featured as it would be in a concert where all the ears are on their music and all their eyes are on those who are playing that music, the performers quite a different story. But one thing that's interesting, and, and whenever I go to the cinema, if I like some of the music in the movie itself, I'll make sure that I stay for the credits. I don't leave the second that the movie's over and the credits start rolling. But if I like the music, I'll stay for that. Because in that part where the credits roll, in most movies, 
the composer is given free reign to actually make the music the, the focus. And you can see that they do that. And they are really trying to show you what they can do. And some of them can do pretty well, do pretty well for themselves. And it's worth listening to, sometimes more so than the music that went on during the actual movie. Sometimes it's a recapitulation of the movie music. Other times it's completely new stuff. But either way, the focus is on the music and it's not attenuated so you can barely hear it or, or whatever it has to be during the movies in order not to drown out the voices and the action. So that's just something to think about. Maybe you've noticed that too, but I'm a big fan of that stuff. If I've liked the music to any degree. One of the problems with all that music is it's not very profound. And I don't know if that's just a reflection on the level of composition in people who make music for Hollywood movies or even independent movies, or if it's just that they spend too much time maybe doing music that sits in the background and not enough time following their dreams and their ideals as a Beethoven would. Beethoven, for example, is not just somebody who writes really good music. He's someone who's inspired with a vision, and it's a musical vision. And if he had been forced to tailor most of his work towards uh, TV shows and movies, I don't think he would have ever got to the level of accomplishment that he did. On a negative side, a uh, really negative side, there's some bad things that are going on in the movies. The worst of it is with opera. At a certain point in the 60s, I guess, opera became a joke, and people who listen to opera or sang opera outside of the opera house I'm talking about. Of course, people who go to the opera love opera. The rest of the people, they thought it was just some idiot with adenoids out of control. And this is how it got into popular culture, basically making fun of it. And things got so bad that up until our present day, if you hear opera being sung, you hear somebody listening to opera or an opera recording in their home, that person is the serial killer that they're all after. That formula works about 98% of the time. There are rare exceptions. One of the rare exceptions is in a great movie where Richard Strauss's four last songs are sung at various points in the movie and not in some way to identify a serial killer. It's beautiful. The movie is called My Year of Living Dangerously, directed by Peter Weir, an Australian director. And in fact, I didn't really know much about Richard Strauss until I heard those songs. I thought Richard Strauss was the composer of Till Eulenspiegel, which he is, which is an idiotic piece of program music that they play in grade schools around the country, or they used to when I was a kid anyway, which I don't like at all. But I didn't realize he was a great composer and that his primary works are operatic, including Der Rosenkavalier, of course, but many other operas that are so worth listening to and have achieved such a great level of perfection. And his operas were written not in the 19th century. They were written in, in the 20th century, right up until the 40s. Even one bad thing about him was he was a toady for Hitler. He became the head of the German music establishment under Hitler. But on the other hand, he tried to protect people and was not a Nazi. That old argument, you hear that in the Trump world too. I stayed working for Trump because if I left, somebody worse would come in who would let him do what he wants. Whereas I worked to tone down his bad instincts and take things off his desk and so they couldn't be done. So whether that's a good argument or not, I think there's something to be said for it, actually. But it's also sad and that person became a Trump toady or in this case, a Nazi toady, that's never a good thing.
but maybe in the context where it happened, it did some good, who knows? But the worst thing that's happened is that thing with the serial killer and opera. And I defy you to find very many movies in which the person listening to it is either not a serial killer or some upper-class creep who's stolen, murdered, done horrible things. In fact, we see that over and over again. And the other thing that we see is string quartets. When we see string quartets in movies, it's always at some upper-class gala where a bunch of corrupt politicians and real estate people, uh, criminals and other types are consorting to rob the public. And they, of course, have a string quartet at their gathering and playing Schubert, which is a joke because Schubert was very poor. Schubert was a guy dying of syphilis. He died at an early age in his 30s, and he didn't have very much money. He was a teacher for a while for his father's schools, and then he quit in order to do music full-time because he had a vision. It was a great vision. And he even managed to make his songs very popular. He wrote songs that were very popular. A lot of people sung at that time. And it wasn't popular music. It was classical music. But it was very popular amongst those who sang. And he didn't get royalties like people do today. He got royalties from the sheet music because people in those days didn't have phonographs. And so any music that they were going to do in their home had to be played by them or their friends or by visiting musicians who they paid. And they needed the sheet music. And the big sheet music publishing companies are the same as the big record labels today. And they gypped him blind. He was totally at their mercy. And I think one book I read said he'd never made more than $50 total in his whole life. Of course, it was $50 worth a lot more than it is today, but still, still not much. And considering he's one of the giants of music, and it's very sad. But here they are at the upper class gala playing the beautiful string quartets of Schubert, for example, a lot of the time. And we're supposed to believe this is only for upper class people and rich people and disgusting, corrupt politicians who service their needs. So that's another sad thing. Another sad thing, which maybe is not so bad, but it's sad to me, is the thing that Moulin Rouge started, the movie Moulin Rouge. What they did was, Here's a movie set in the 19th century at the Moulin Rouge, and the music is all contemporary pop music instead of anything resembling the music of the time. And uh, you see that again in The Greatest Showman about P.T. Barnum, who lived in the 19th century. In that movie, they're making P.T. Barnum out to be a pioneer of diversity because of his freak show, which I think was just to him a freak show, not a pioneering effort in diversity. But they're making it out to be that in the movie. And there's something to be said for it a little bit. It make a little bit of a case for it. But the fact is that the music is contemporary popular music. So it creates a dissonance between the way that people are dressed, what people are acting, and the music, which is not at all of their century. It's acultural, in my opinion, and not such a great thing. Although the dissonance is interesting because what it does show, perhaps you could make a case for it to say that it gives you a feeling of contemporary, a contemporary feeling. And people back in the 19th century didn't think, oh, we're people who live 200 years ago because they were living in the moment. And they thought they were on the cutting edge of things. All the things that they had, they thought all their scientific advances were so great. And here we have telegram and that sort of thing. And they thought they were really cutting it. And they're not some old fogies from a million years ago. And they thought their habits were new and their dances were new and everything. 
And you, you certainly don't get that when you hear the old music because people associate the old music with old things. So by playing popular music, you're creating that atmosphere. So that, that's, I think, what you could say is good about it, but not so good that it misleads people a bit. There's some people who probably don't know the difference. Probably most people watching that movie don't know the difference because of the abysmal level of musical education in the United States. That's, that could, that's the real negative side of it. Oh, by the way, P.T. Barnum was not just this kind man. He later founded a hospital. He became a politician. He was elected to office, was an abolitionist, get slavery in those days, which was quite a thing to be against slavery. He's not quite the guy who said there's a sucker born every minute, which actually he never said it was attributed to him, though. He came out from that into something else. So thank you for listening. And even though there's no rolling credits in this podcast, I'll end with some of my music. Bye and stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>